Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 U.S. Democratic primary. Today on the Primarily podcast, I've got an interview with Christians on the left activist Rachel Bergen, talking about the history and present day role of faith and specifically Christian faith in the leftist movement, both in the UK and in the US. Um, we talk a lot about the way that the right has tried to weaponize religion and Christianity um, and what activists like Rachel, um, how they see their faith motivating their politics and their politics motivating their faith. So it was a really interesting conversation. Um, stay tuned for that. Before we get into that, though, um, I've got a quick news roundup for you. Um, so we'll try and keep that super quick this time. And also a quick follow up on last week, last week's podcast, I asked you to give me some feedback on whether you are prefer to have two shorter podcast episodes um, twice a week or one longer podcast once a week. Um, interestingly, somewhat to my surprise, there was a general sense that they'd probably, you, my listeners, would probably prefer one slightly longer episode. Uh, but there was also um, feedback that said perhaps we can just keep the episodes a little bit tighter. So that's what I'm going to try and do. So I am scrapping the what are you going to do segment at the end of the episode, just in the interest of keeping things tighter. I'm going to try and keep the news segments up front to 60 seconds per news item maximum. Um, and keep the interviews as pacey as I can. So thank you for all that feedback. Please continue to keep it coming. I'm really interested to hear how it's working for you. How are you listening? What are your thoughts? Are there any topics you would particularly like us to cover in a future podcast? Are there any guests you would especially like me to interview in a future podcast? Uh, let me know what you think. Thanks so much. And now a quick news roundup. Okay, so as I said in my new news in brief segment, I'm going to try and keep it to 60 seconds each for each individual story that I'm covering. So the first one in 60 seconds, uh, this week, there seems to be some sort of ongoing, the papers are calling it a war, a polite media discussion, I would argue, between followers of Bernie Sanders and fans of Beto O'Rourke. Um, the crux of the argument seems to be whether or not Beto O'Rourke is indeed as progressive as Bernie Sanders is. The subtext to all of this is that uh, Sanders won a lot of support from young voters in the 2016 election, uh, millennial voters who made up a, a core constituency for him. There's a lot of anxiety amongst the Bernie camp, or at least allegedly uh, that Beto is appealing to some of the same voters, um, and that some of the voters who are coming of age now might swing more in a Beto than a Bernie direction. I think this goes to show the degree to which it's not particularly ideological, but partly personality driven. Um, but it's certainly true that this is a this is a dynamic happening. So it will be interesting to watch. Done. I had a lot more to say than that. That was sixty seconds. Kept it pretty tight. The next story I want to talk about, unfortunately, in 60 seconds go, the uh, federal government is still shut down. Donald Trump, as you know, shut down the federal government before Christmas. This means that federal workers are still working uh, without pay. It is unknown when they will actually ever get their paychecks. Many of these workers should indeed be paid for the time um, that they were furloughed or working without pay. 
some of them some of them who have been furloughed will never receive any any of their money the rest will just have to wait for their paychecks longer than expected even though they've been required to work the reason why trump is doing this is purely because he's trying to get funding for his wall um and in ironically uh, a perfect trumpian fashion he's now threatening to close uh, to end border security so that he can have his border security in other words he's uh threatening that he might uh stand down the people who are defending the border for the sake of defending the border. I don't know. In his head, it makes sense. Anyway, I think that might've been a little over 60 seconds, but I kept it as tight as it could. This week on the podcast, we're moving in a slightly different direction as I will be interviewing a guest who's not even an American. But my friend Rachel Bergen is a dedicated political activist and a member of a group called Christians on the Left here in the UK. The recent history of US politics has felt very much as though the right have been claiming faith and specifically Christian faith as exclusively a conservative movement. But there's always been a huge role for faith-based organizing within the progressive movement in both the US and the UK. And I thought it was worth taking a few moments to reflect on that history and that tradition, especially since it carries through to this day, where African-American churches, for instance, are a huge force at work in the Democratic Party. For example, Reverend Barber's Moral Moral Mondays activism in North Carolina has been um, a very effective organizing tool uh, for Democrats in North Carolina and, and throughout the South. And black churches in South Carolina in particular have been an important part of the primary process. For example, Obama's winning primary strategy in 2008 involved reaching out to churches in this way. So I'm sure we'll see candidates tapping into this tradition as the primary progressives. And I thought it was just worth understanding a little bit more about uh, the faith-based part of the progressive movement. So thank you to Rachel Bergen, one of my favorite people, for joining me today on the podcast. Rachel, hello. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Karen. Thank um, you for being so nice about me. Oh, well, you're, you're a lovely person and, and it's always lovely to talk to you. And as you may be able to tell from her accent, Rachel is is as English as, uh, as an English rose. <laughs> But um, I did very much want to talk to her today because it is the Christmas season. And um, I think there have been a lot of conversations about kind of the meaning of Christmas in people's lives. Um, And Rachel is somebody who I know has been very deeply informed by her faith as part of her political activism. And she's a member of, of Christians on the left. And I just thought it'd be really interesting to hear your take on things um, and how your faith and Christianity has, has informed your, your politics. Yes. um, So Karen, Apologies for that. My husband's just got walked through the door. (laughs) So anyway, how does my faith inform my politics? I guess actually it goes way back for me. So I I have an interesting background in that my mum is from Northern Ireland and my dad is from the West Cumberland Coalfield and that very much shaped me politically. And actually for me, um, when I was 11... I was given a Gideon's Bible in a school assembly. That's something that might sound a little bit alien to many Americans who, um, for whom, you know, religion doesn't really come into schools or there, there are rules around that. Um, yeah, Britain does not have separation of church and state in schools. Yeah, so for me, I actually read a radical difference for us. Yeah, so actually, you know, I went to um, state-funded church schools, which is another weird thing. But for me, 
Um, the thing that was really important was reading the New Testament and reading the Sermon on the Mount and actually seeing quite a radical, topsy-turvy vision of the world, which instinctively put me on the left. So I wasn't really informed by great political leaders. I wasn't informed by theologians or, you know, any Christian coalition or religious right or whatever. I just had the Bible. That's all I had. Uh, and um, over the years, um, you know, you go around down rabbit holes on particular pet issues and you feel particularly strongly. And for me, I've always come back to the Sermon on the Mount as being kind of the foundation of Christian teaching. You know, blessed be the meek, blessed are the poor, all that kind of thing. And 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 for me, um, that has always been really important to me and why I've ended up on the left, um, I, I suppose. And interestingly, there's a group um, in America influenced by Tony Campolo and Jim Wallace who call themselves red letter Christians. And what they're trying to do, it's it's a kind of response to the religious right in America, is get kind of Christian politics back to what Jesus actually said, rather than kind of obscure bits of the Old Testament or even New Testament. You know, what's really important, what are the absolute um, foundations, centre point of what we as Christians believe? Uh, and it comes back to the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's kind of where he started. And I think that's the thing that I find so endlessly fascinating is because there is there is a very strong political movement of the of the religious in America of specifically evangelical white Christians um, who have in my reading of it. I mean, they may certainly disagree, but my reading of it, it feels like they're using their faith more as a cultural than as a moral system. Um, it feels like they're using it as a, a synonym for white identity. Sorry, did you did you lose me for a second there? Um, no, it, no, I, I, I've got that bit. So it feels like they're using it more as a, a, a synonym for white identity. Mm -hmm. And I think as a result of that, a lot of Democrats, including myself a lot of the time, have been very uncomfortable with expressions of overt Christianity in the political sphere, because it seems like the way that our colleagues on the right are using it is is it's designed as a system of exclusion to keep Jews and Muslims and even people of faith out of the conversation. Is that something that you worry about? And how do we square that circle in this conversation when we want to be a, a movement for everyone? What's really odd is if you look at kind of political history in the UK, um, is evangelicals in the broadest sense of the term have been on the left generally. Um, <laughs> And when I mean, what I mean is the groups I'm referring to are the levellers, the diggers, the chartists, um, and even, I mean, William Wilberforce was a conservative politician with a left-wing cause, if you like, on slavery, yeah. and Shaftesbury, yeah. all these great... For, for my American listeners, uh, William Wilberforce was an MP who was, who was a, a major driving force in the movement to end the slave trade here in Britain. And um, he was very much informed, as you say, by his evangelical Christian faith, which was yeah. a very different character of than, than what we're seeing in American evangelicalism. Yes, that's true. And in fact, um, it's, I mean, it's only in recent decades, and I put it back to maybe the time that Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, that there was any change in that in the UK. There was never expect, any expectation that if you were a Christian you were supposed to vote for a right-wing party. That, that's, um, 
that's kind of a bit odd historically. And in fact, if you look at the Methodists, and of course, I know that Methodism is huge in the United States, but actually yeah. John Wesley was British and as was George Whitfield. They were hugely influential in politicizing the working class because what they did through um, their Methodist lay preacher scheme, for want of a better term, was they trained up working class leaders to be able to lead and speak in public and that actually that actually led to or one of was one of the three things that fed into the creation of the labor party so methodism ended up you know being hugely influential in founding the labor party and actually more directly than any other um movement um and that's the other thing i suppose um you know the working class in britain being on the left is slightly odd in America where poorer people tend to vote right but that, again that's changing yeah which is not actually that's not specifically true I would say um how shall I put this so it is not true that the working class votes right the working class tends to vote democrat it is yeah. true if you exclude minorities from the working class then of statistically course, yeah. you get a weighting in that direction but that's part of that's part of I think the cultural discomfort that um, a lot of American Democrats have when religion comes into the public public sphere is because it is so often used as a Christianity as a description of European descent rather than as a moral system that believes in um, that in believes in equality and and the well-being of mankind in general and it's and that's 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 what keeps happening is there's this white evangelicalism which is so different than so much of the rest of American religious tradition and and political tradition um, you know and I think you know the history of it is interesting in the states too because we too have a history of Christian leftist activism and and just as in the UK where Wilberforce and his evangelicalism was a driver in ending the slave trade mm. um, the abolitionist movement was primarily and, and and indeed later on the temperance movement were both primarily religious led political movements coming from the left I mean it sounds like strange that temperance would be seen as a leftist movement but it well, was no, at the time no you, you're absolutely right and in fact Keir Hardy the founder of the Labour Party was um was involved in the temperance movement and actually there, there is no contradiction if your um, passion is to improve a lot of the working classes um that you would see things like uh, drugs and gambling and all of that kind of thing is not necessarily helping the working classes yeah. um now obviously the liberal left look at those issues very very differently but but um, the Labour Party does have a strong tradition in that respect. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's 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 a really interesting sphere, and I think we have a very people have a very simplistic understanding of you know a very black and white, <laughs> quite literally, in America uh, understanding of of the role of religion and faith in <laughs> politics. And then as Democrats, you know, we are an inclusive movement and there are an increasing number of Muslim Americans, for example, young people. There is a larger number of people who are perhaps unallied with any faith whatsoever. We have quite a lot of Jewish people in our movement, as you do in the labor of movement here in Britain as well, um, although less and less nowadays. But let's let's move that to one side. Um, and And so I think there has been a history of using Christian faith as a cultural shorthand, um, you know, in, in some ways in politics, you know, in a speech, you throw in a biblical passage, people recognize it, and everybody knows what you're talking about. But that feels a little bit more precarious nowadays, maybe a little bit more 
um, you know, I, I, where do we go with that when when Christian faith is not a universal cultural signifier? Well, I, there's two points I want to make. Firstly, actually, in the UK, one of the paradoxes of the immigration debate is how a lot of immigration in the UK is actually causing churches to grow. And in fact, the one yeah. diocese in the UK where the church is growing is in London. And for example, the Polish, the massive increase in the Polish population has filled Catholic churches. And Africans in particular are behind a massive movement of church growth, which means that um, I think that as I suppose mainline Christianity in its broadest sense, declines, it is becoming more diverse in the UK, perhaps because we're a smaller country, it's having a greater impact. And of course, um, a lot of black women in particular are coming into politics, particularly on the left. And, you know, that, that I suppose, changes a lot of the dynamics in terms of the conversations we have on the left, because um, since Christianity is becoming less and less um, identified as something that white people do, it then um, does create different um, issues of diversity which in which often Christian groups are minorities. Um, in terms of you know diversifying outside of um, uh, the Christian faith, I think one really key issue that illustrates this is um, some years ago we had a, a, a piece of legislation called the religious um, uh, um, hatred, it was a piece of legislation that kind of was brought into on the issue of um, religious hatred and a lot of churches felt really concerned about this because they felt that this particular legislation was going to stop them preaching the gospel it's going to be against freedom of speech however if you approach that issue as Christians being one of many different religions actually Christianity if it's not the imperialist majority religion has just as much chance of benefiting from a piece of legislation like that um, as as suffering from it, if, if you know what I mean. So, so actually, if a piece of legislation is brought in on religious hatred, then Christians um, are going to be protected from, from religious hatred as much as they might be accused of perpetrating it. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think the the right in America has sort of weaponized this concept of religious freedom. They've tried to use it primarily to protect the majority faith, you know, they, yeah. to protect their own faith at at the expense of others. So, for example, you know, insisting that 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 employers should be allowed to restrict their employees from having access to birth control they've treated that as a religious freedom issue rather than a personal freedom issue or a, or a health freedom issue um and so i think that's where again the the role of faith in politics has made many democrats very uncomfortable because it has so often been used as a way of weaponizing powerful people against less powerful people which is yeah. obviously you know as I know from from the way that you approach your politics is the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. Well, yes, yeah, so what many example, of the left are. Even in the last few days, um, one of the most absurd things I've seen is people trying to argue that Mary, Joseph and Jesus were not refugees when they escaped. <laughs> which <laughs> for me, I'm just like, guys, you know, like. If you're going to go, if you're going to try and argue that, you know, we shouldn't be helping refugees, at least 
don't try and argue that black is white. You know? Well, I mean, I think I always see things like this and I think I'm not sure which part of this is actual ignorance and which part of this is disingenuousness. It's like, how stupid are you? What, which part of the of of your own scriptures are you not familiar with? And I, I think some of them are just like, well, when they went to Bethlehem, they weren't refugees, but then they fled to Egypt. Because- well, and, and you know, kind of Egypt was part of the Roman Empire, so they weren't technically refugees, but you know, they were kind of escaping a king. That they were fleeing for them, their so lives. Like, <laughs> that's kind of the definition of refugee. <laughs> Seeking refuge in a different country away but it, from someone. But it touches on it touches on a deeper point, doesn't it? If you do not want to help refugees, there's no scriptural basis for that. You know, you know, if if what you want to say is that we have no responsibility to care for others, then you can't use the Bible as your justification for that. And yet that's what they want to do. So they, they find themselves at an impasse. Well, yeah, I think that on the I mean, for example, on the issue of refugees. Um, you know, um, that there's kind of uh, in face as primary issues and the sec- secondary issues. But actually, um, you know, the way I approach it is that the whole Christian narrative is one of us being aliens and strangers in a foreign land and being, yeah. you know, that we will not um, we will not reach our homeland until we reach the New Jerusalem. Like it, it's kind of the whole point of the story that we are all in in a sense immigrants we are all refugees we are all not citizens of this kingdom but of the heavenly kingdom it literally says that mm. we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom <laughs> well there you go so um yeah it's it's clear that there's a lot of scriptural misunderstanding going on from our friends on the right um for the for the people on the left, for those of us on the left who are trying to have a conversation and open up the conversation and welcome people in, including people of faith who perhaps have felt that Democrats don't speak to them or for them, yeah. what advice would you give to a Democratic candidate who wanted to be inclusive of communities of Christian people in a way that was inclusive as well of, as non-Christians? How would you, if you were advising a candidate, how would you advise them to have that conversation well i suppose it's like all relationships you start off with where the common ground is now interestingly what happens in british politics is that when there's a right-wing government we tend you know churches tend to gravitate to left-wing causes and vice versa so since the um, coalition government came in in 2010 there's been a massive explosion of food banks in the uk and homelessness has just got epidemic and all that kind of stuff and it's the churches that are stepping in on those particular issues and often it's the left-wing politicians you know crediting the churches with their involvement um in in those kind of areas and i i think that that is a positive development and i, I think that if you know, you know, if you want to build a relationship with your local church, you find common cause on the issues that you agree on. Um, and I think that that, in terms of including faith in its broadest sense, I, I think that uh, that is really positive. One person who I think is absolutely brilliant at this is Sadiq Khan. Mm-hmm. And this might surprise American listeners, but Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, who is Muslim, and everyone knows he's Muslim, he's the Muslim son of a tax um, bus driver. Um, but actually, what he's been really good at is reaching out to different faith communities, including churches and including some actually quite evangelical churches. And he's been seen that, you know, black Pentecostal churches and 
um, you know, free churches and all the rest of it, worshipping with them and crediting them with, with their work. And I think, um, I don't think there is a politician around who does that so well and who reaches out so far into the different faith communities. And, and in a way that kind of, in which he expresses his shared values on, on the issues on which he agrees as, as a Muslim with, 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 with Christians. And I think that that is really, really positive. So I think that's a really good place to leave that conversation is with a reminder that speaking to people of Christian faith and people who are motivated politically by their faith does not have to mean sharing that faith directly. We can have candidates who are Jewish, we can have candidates who are Muslim, and we are, in fee- indeed, the Democrats are expanding the diversity of the religious backgrounds of our of our candidates and of our people in Congress. But we can express a sense of shared value and a sense of shared solidarity. And there are so many points in common, um, even if we aren't directly sharing the same faith. Absolutely. Yes. Lovely. Rachel, have you got a minute to stick with me and we can play the gut check game really quickly? Really quickly, yes. Really quickly. So um, for the benefit of my listeners, very quickly, as you may or may not know, I have in front of me a Red Sox baseball cap into which I have put the names of lots of people who might be running for president. They may or may not be. Let, let's imagine for the sake of the argument that they are. I'm going to pull a name out of the hat and then Rachel and I will both just very quickly give our gut check reaction for how we would feel if that person were indeed the 2020 nominee. So let's say the 2020 nominee were New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. My husband quite likes Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, I think that she, I think that she, um, and I come at this as somebody who is not an expert on American politics, but um, I I think that um, she is, is, is clearly a woman who, um, is progressive and she has good values and actually i believe she's a woman of faith is that right i think so too yes that's my impression um, i i think that um whether a new york senator would be able to reach out to you know kansas and kentucky i i, I don't know but um i would certainly be very happy if she was president yeah that's it. I mean, that's that's kind of my reaction, too, is I would be happy if she were president. I worry about how easy she would find it to become president. Um, but just because I think I think she's a very smart and capable person. I like a lot of her policies and she's she's been really smart. It's been also really irritating to me to watch people who are very angry at Kirsten Gillibrand because she called out Al Franken and then Al Franken quit the Senate after Al Franken uh, was credibly accused of, of sexual harassment, including with photographic evidence. Now people are weirdly angry at Kirsten Gillibrand about that. That just makes me really uncomfortable. It feels like, why do we always find a way to blame a woman for something a man has has done or not done it's just new um so yeah i mean i would be i would be open to kirsten Gillibrand. i kind of need to see her i'd be interested to see her run and see how she positions herself because i think she's she's positioned herself in a couple of different ways she's been more or less progressive more or less centrist i'd be interested to hear her speak from the heart about kind of who she is and where she where she wants the country to go one more name and then I will release you. I know you've got a long drive ahead of you. So let me pick a name. Kamala Harris, California Senator. Um, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, 
Oh, you pick somebody I haven't you heard of. You don't know that name. That's fair enough. That's Maybe the whole point of the get- somebody that we haven't heard of because we haven't heard of Barack Obama. So, you know. <laughs> Kamala Harris is a California senator. She is a former prosecutor and she's very smart. Um, I really liked the way she sort of was um, when she was on the committee with uh, with the Kavanaugh hearings. She was, she was a very smart interrogator. Um, my only worry with Kamala is I think... I'm not sure I've seen a, a kind of coherent policy platform from her yet. I feel like she's a very smart woman who I've seen being a really good interrogator and a really good kind of inter interrogator in politics. I don't know fundamentally what her what her policies are. But again, that's why we have a primary. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I think maybe the Democratic Party need to think strategically about who is best placed to, I mean... <laughs> Donald Trump, I mean, assuming Donald Trump runs again, who, who is... <laughs> assuming he's not yeah, in jail at this point. That's kind, of a, that's kind of a unique set of skills you kind of need to take on someone yeah. like Donald Trump. That's not something that a conventional politician is going to be able to do particularly well. I think that, I think that it's going to need to be somebody who can win over... I mean, somebody who is clearly progressive in terms of being able to not appease... Donald Trump, where he should not be appeased, but somebody who can bring along middle America or the decent middle Americas. I mean, I know I've got many friends in America that, you know, now it, uh, amongst many who even voted for Donald Trump, there are a lot of millions of really decent people who, um, uh, and how do we reach those um, in a way that um, doesn't alienate them? And I think it's a hard thing because there's a sense in which the kind of we're at risk of sometimes coming across a bit puritanical every time Donald Trump says something <laughs> and then that becomes a narrative. And I think that's his strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And actually that I think you've kind of picked on the thing that makes me quietly uncomfortable about both Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand, both of whom I think are very excellent politicians that I would mm -hmm. vote for in any state level office, is this weird thing of presidential politics is almost, it's something different. It's not just do you have the right policies, it's more do you inspire the right feelings in people? Do you create this sense of excitement? Can you help us? Can you help us sweep a movement along? Yeah. And I think Donald Trump has almost no attributes in his favor. But yeah. the one thing he is good at is managing media to sweep people along emotionally, positively and negatively. Yeah. But I think any conventional Democratic politician who is, you know, who, which I respect, who is good at kind of managing the political process, pushing legislation through, kind of politely negotiating with people to create consensus and so forth, almost inherently not doing what Donald Trump does, um, which is firing people up and, and you know, he touches on some of our worst emotions, but he touches on our emotions. And we kind of need somebody who's who's going to light a fire under under the movement a little bit and, mm -hmm. and get people on their feet. I think um, that actually what he does is he kind of trolls us. He totally so, trolls us. <laughs> he he says things in order to get a reaction from the left. Yeah. And then when the left reacts, um, it's then, oh, look at that left, look at it, you know, the kind of the identity policy. You know, and, and so he yeah. he brings out the worst in the left, yeah. which then the middle, some of the middle then feels uncomfortable with because it's those left getting really outraged over, what you know, um, 
what they see as sometimes daft things. And, and I think that somehow the left needs to find a way to, to kind of not react in the way that Donald Trump is trying to get them to react. I think that's exactly right. And that kind of fundamentally what I'm looking for is somebody who will drive drive the conversation in the direction we want it to go. Because even when we are correctly responding to Donald Trump's provocations, we are responding to Donald Trump's provocations. And it's this impossible circle to square because he says and does things that are so outrageously offensive, illegal, um, inappropriate, beyond uh, what is acceptable in public life, that it's almost like it's morally necessary to respond to it in some way. But then yeah. you're spending all your time doing that. And we need yes. somebody who has a new story to tell and can move people's attention, the media narrative, and our focus onto that. We yeah. kind of did that really well during the midterms, and I've talked about this before, by focusing really closely on, on healthcare. Yeah. But we did that on a state-by-state, district-by-district level, and we need a new national narrative, and we need it now. <laughs> yeah, we do. So um, anyway, so that's where I'm coming from. And I still I'm waiting for the the candidate who will kind of emerge from the the mist and prove to me that they can do that. And any one of these people, I'm open to them being able to help us steer that national conversation. But we, we need some of that, some of that kind of leadership. Anyway, Rachel, I know you were meant to be on the road 20 minutes ago. Thank you That's so right. much for your patience. Um, no, and thank you for your patience on the kind of <laughs> technological nightmare we had before this started. But it's It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you for a very fresh and, and interesting perspective um, and hope to talk to you again. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Primarily 2020. As always, please keep the suggestions coming and the feedback is very welcome. If you have any thoughts about what you'd like to hear in a future podcast, if you have a candidate you'd like to tell me about, if you are already supporting somebody you think is fantastic or already very much not supporting someone you think is not fantastic, please let me know. If you are using Anchor on the mobile device, on the mobile app, just go ahead and send me a voicemail directly on that or send me any messages on Twitter at Karen. K-A-R-I-N-J-R. That's at Karen J-R on Twitter. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next Friday.